Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Today, we have a something a little a little different with our podcast. First of all, uh, my colleague David Tainter is is on vacation, which is which is much deserved. He's I think he's actually in I think he's in Italy, which is like I, I was like I was like checking out some some pictures uh, on 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 Instagram. So today, we're going to talk to. Someone who many of you are probably familiar with. His name is Rick Perlstein, um, and he has uh, he, he's he's Rick is one of those rare people, a a non academic or non primarily academic uh, historian. He's done a series of of books that sort of chronicle the rise of the American right over the last. Uh, more than 50 years now, going back to the early 1960s. Um, there is a, 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 a famous book on Goldwater, another on uh, Nixon. Uh, you know, I, if I, uh, I'll misstate something if I go too far. But, but uh, Rick is one of the most knowledgeable people in the United States about the conservative movement and the rise of the conservative movement. He's a prolific writer. He's, he, he writes a lot outside of his uh, books. In any case, today, uh, we are going to talk to him because, as I think we've discussed before, TPM in 2018 is doing a major series on voting rights and democracy. It is a 10-part series that we're doing in the second half of this year. Uh, the second installment is by uh, Rick and his co-author, Livia Gershon. Um, and then we actually just today, and when I say today, Thursday, um, I think this episode will come out today or tomorrow on, on, on Friday. We have a new piece out by Rachel Cohen, and that is about gerrymandering and the all the... Uh, voting rights groups, progressive groups that are mobilizing to get us back to a political system where if you get the most votes, you win, right? <laughs> which is not, which is not necessarily uh, the case anymore, especially in, in, in the House of Representatives. But today we're going to talk to uh, Rick about his article, which was uh, the second installment, which is about the history of scare tactics about voter fraud and how they have long been used as a tool to either uh, just directly intimidate voters with poll watching and intimidation tactics or pass laws like voter ID and, you know, all these different kind of things, which which you're probably fairly familiar with. Um, TPM has been writing about this uh publishing stories about this topic for really the entire history of the publication going back almost 20 years now. Um, the piece that that uh, Rick and Livia wrote, however, goes back all the way to 1960. Now, the, the, the struggle for voting rights goes back to the very beginning of the country's history, but there is a specific history to it that goes back to as Rick describes, goes back to 1960, coming out of the 1960 election, and it quickly becomes doctrine in the Republican Party, which is on the way to becoming coterminous, synonymous with the conservative movement, that there's 
tons of voter fraud and things need to be done to combat it. And over time, that leads to all the things that that we all know about. So we are going to, in a moment, talk to Rick. And I just want to say, um, probably in the next, probably uh, an episode next week or possibly the week after that, we are going to talk to Rachel Cohen about her piece on gerrymandering. So before we get to all that, I want to quickly tell you uh, about Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, which, as you know, is the sponsor of the Josh Marshall podcast. Want in on New York City's favorite cold brew? Head to Grady'sColdBrew.com for free shipping on all their greatest hits. Grady's famous coffee concentrate is cold brewed, delivering the strongest, smoothest, most refreshing. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here and I was having a hard time reading it because I, I, I'm so ancient now. I wear what they used to call like bifocals, but now they're called progressive lenses, which is sort of like space age bifocals. But I was looking at an angle so I could see it and I could, uh, I could read this copy and not have the microphone in the way, but I was I was having a hard time. So, back to Grady's cold brew iced coffee. Uh, we're gonna pick it up right here. Grady's famous coffee concentrate is cold brewed, delivering the strongest, smoothest, most refreshing iced coffee on the market. Using a special blend of Indonesian and Ethiopian beans and chicory imported from France, Grady's has a touch of natural sweetness without any added sugar. Grady's is independently owned and operated and has been brewing in New York City since 2001. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady's coldbrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. So again, uh, definitely check out our voting rights and democracy series. It's running through, uh, it's running through into December, just after the election. We are now on the third installment. We have, I guess, seven more coming. And the series is sponsored by the American Federation of Teachers, uh, one, one of the country's two main teachers unions. And in addition to being a uh, teachers union and, and doing all the collective bargaining that goes with that, they're also very involved uh, in political issues around the country, and particularly voting rights and, and democracy. So we uh, appreciate their supporting the project. So with all that, let's talk to Rick Perlstein. Hi, Rick. Hi, Josh. How are you? I'm doing great. Pleasure to be here. Oh, well, you know, I think this is, this is, uh, I've always, I, I guess you, I think back in the, in the, in the, in the dark ages, you maybe participated in like a book club on TPM or maybe did some posts or something. But as far as I know, this is the first time you ever, you've ever done a, you know, a, a full length article. Yeah. Or, original content, shall we yes, say. Original yeah, I'm content. A definitely a long time listener. I was, I was uh, following you religiously back during the recount days. You know, it's well. Thank you, thank you so much. I'm, 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 uh, I'm honored. And to that would be that. the Florida recount in 2000 for kids out there. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's. Uh, I, I was, I was, uh, I, I was just having a conversation with one of my colleagues here, and and I was, I mentioned uh, a name of an actress, but it was like, you know, we're old, and he's not as old <laughs> as us. So it was like, dude, before your time, don't worry, don't worry about it. Um, anyway, yeah, I'm so saying that more and more. Yeah, exactly. So I love this piece, and and I, so. Um, the thing, there's so much going on here, and what was interesting about it to me is everything from the late 90s on, I'm pretty familiar with. 
And I have right. a general sense of stuff coming out of the post-Jim Crow era in the South and the stuff with uh, the former Chief Justice in Arizona. But you point out that the genesis of this in the sort of the you know modern era, uh, second half of the 20th century, actually goes back to or a key point of genesis, goes back to the 1960 election, which was obviously a very close election between Richard Nixon and, and John Kennedy. And Nixon thought that the election had been stolen from him, uh, mainly in Chicago, but also maybe in Texas. So tell us about that. Walk us through, because and I have a few questions I want to ask, but what's the story there? Sure. You can't really do what I've been doing kind of professionally for about 21 years now, which is, you know, studying the history of the conservative takeover of the Republican Party and you know, subsequently a lot of our institutions uh, without this sort of core tenet of right-wing Republican folklore uh, showing up all over the place, which is that, you know, Kennedy stole, stole the 1960 election with, John, uh, with, with, you know, the help of Richard Daley in Chicago, and we got to prevent it from happening ever again, and that kind of morphing into this bad faith, willful attempt to make it harder for Democratic voters to vote. And how I first became aware of it was researching the 1964 presidential election and Barry Goldwater and, you know, coming across the Democratic National Committee's apoplexy over this thing called Operation Eagle Eye, which was basically a poll-watching organization which institutionalized the idea of uh, voter caging, you know, way back then. And going back to 1960... And tell us, us, our, 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 our listeners and hopefully readers of the piece, what is voter caging? So voter caging is this idea that um, there are all kinds of people on the voter rolls who aren't really legitimate voters, and the way we're going to smoke them out is generally by, um, you know, sending postcards or registered letters to an address, actually not postcards, registered letters to an address or letters to an address, and if uh, the letter... Uh, comes back to you unopened, that's taken almost as prima facie evidence that, you know, no one lives there, the person is fake. Uh, You know, different versions of that idea of seeing if people live where they really say they are. You know, in 1964, there was a lot of, oh, you've got to go to these, every address and see if it's really a vacant lot or a warehouse. Right, right. right. And uh, the idea that this is this radically widespread thing, uh, and, you know, it never really made any sense uh, on the face of it that um, people who uh, are mistakenly registered or even illicitly registered would be voting in any kind of mass numbers. I mean, it would just be a terrible way to steal an election. But it's a great way to kind of raise fears of stealing an election. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, in the case of Chicago in 1960, it has the added advantage of the fact that elections in Cook County, Chicago, often had been quite crooked and you know remained quite crooked, really into the 1970s when uh, it was pretty pretty efficiently and uh, finally cleaned up. But you know I have I live in Chicago and uh, of course this is a piece of folklore that I'm you know able to talk to people who were involved in living memory uh, most uh, most prominently the very distinguished. 
uh, Chicago reform liberal political activist uh, Don Rose, who you know, who's who's. Um, Biography includes being campaign manager for Jane Byrne, being Martin Luther King's publicist in 1966. You know, he really his his activism goes back to the 1940s, and so you know he was able to tell me exactly how election how votes were stolen in Chicago. And one of the interesting things he told me was, yes, they did this and they did this, and you know people would call in you know vote totals uh, at gunpoint, you know, and all kinds of crazy <laughs> stuff. Right. But the point that's the the, the central folklore is that dead people vote in Chicago. And he said, there's a quote in the piece, oh, well, that was only ever like 10 to 15% of the steal, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but it's the kind of thing where, you know, even today, you know, people joke about Chicago, um, the people, you know, voting from tombstones. And, of course, here in Illinois, we have the local knowledge that people always said, well, there's no, there's no more dead people voting Democrat in Chicago than there are cows voting Republican downstate. So, you know, you never really kind of took this seriously if you actually know what's going on. But as this kind of, and is, uh, is that, you know, is Obama that, born in Kenya kind of folklore, yeah. it's, it's, it's absolutely is that, uh, is that, taken on faith. Is that um, is is what is presumably behind that, the idea that there was as much uh, Republican voter fraud in the air, in the parts of the state they control? Is that is that? True. That's right. Is that, okay, is that, okay. That's right. Now, so two points yeah. I want to ask you about. Now, the first is, and what what really interested me about this is that, as we know from, um, as we know from, uh, the Nixon Watergate tapes and a lot else, Nixon was was a at a minimum a yeah. very un PC person, and yet right. it, it sounds from what you're saying here that. He was just pissed because he thought he the president he had the presidency stolen from him. It wasn't like a raced thing. He just it became as as many things did with Richard Nixon. He just became kind of obsessed. So you have so you so it it sounds like to the extent that this 1960 election and Nixon's being convinced that he was robbed is an origination point. That the origination right. is relatively unconnected to. Yeah, the, the I don't think ra- there was anything particularly racial about it, but it became racial very quickly. Right, right. right. So the people who did kind of have these racial intuitions right. uh, that the best way to um, guarantee uh, that you could hold down the, the Democratic vote was by targeting people of races that tend to vote Democrat, which is a pretty uh, easy. Uh, chain of reasoning to make could use this kind of Nixon uh, legend, which people probably believe pretty sincerely to do. So you do have, you know, by 1962, uh, um, William Rehnquist, you know, who's this prominent Maricopa County, Arizona Republican lawyer, uh, heading Operation Eagle Eye. And we have eyewitness testimony of him challenging Hispanic voters by asking them elaborate questions about the Constitution, which was actually legal back then. There were literal literacy tests, but obviously fell afoul of all kind of kinds of uh, moral norms. Right. Uh, and then, you know, you have, um, you know, by, it, it, again, the, the, the Chicago nature of this, the guy who ran Operation Eagle Eye from, uh, for Barry Goldwater being this kind of northern Indiana, Chicago metropolitan area uh, petroleum lawyer named Charlie Barr. And then one of the, my favorite details that I ran across kind of looking into this a little more deeply 
was that uh, Everett Dirksen, who's the conservative senator from Illinois, uh, literally sending out 10,000 caging letters from his Senate office uh, <laughs> with you know the return address being the Operation Eagle Eye office in Chicago, using his franking privileges. <laughs> I would think even <laughs> in those days that was the more, not uh, legit, right? I mean, you couldn't have I any... Mean, yeah, was... I don't think that that was uh, quite legit. I mean, he was on his way out, so yeah, maybe he thought he could get away with it. He retired, you know, that he was retiring that year. Right, but right. But then already you can see almost kind of like a mens rea, you know, a sense that mm-hmm. the Republicans know that this isn't really something that uh, smells right. Because, right. you know, two years later in 1970, they... They, they, they full tent on Operation Eagle Eye. And I don't really know necessarily what happened between, you know, 1970 and 1977, but 1977, uh, when Jimmy Carter, using this kind of very 30,000 feet kind of engineer's mentality that I'm going to fix the voting system, introduces this um, very, very elaborate um, and quite aggressive voting reform package that includes, by the way, getting rid of the Electoral College. I didn't put that in the article, but oh, you know, Ronald Reagan ranted that. and raved about that, using um, being very much like the John C. Calhoun argument that, um, you know, we're a federation of states. Right. And, um, you know, you can find that in my, um, well, oh, that's funny. I just said you can find it in my book, but the book's not out yet. Um, so wait, but, let me, um, let me, let me, know, so, so let me ask you a question, yeah. a question right there, though, because one of the points you make in, in, in the article in our series is that, you know, Carter comes out with this, let's set us for the moment, let's set aside the electoral college, but, uh, I guess automatic voter registration or some something close to that and at first like registration by 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 mail and same okay. day registration too got it okay um and as you describe it at first a lot of people on both sides of the aisle kind of like yeah you know this sounds good and but it was sort That's of right. the strategists and activists on the republican side who kind of reined the gop in and it's like this is terrible for us what do you, you know what are you what are you thinking i'm curious when what you, are you thinking when you mention exactly what happened yeah when when you mention the electoral college was there initial openness even to that cuz that's a pretty big that's a pretty big deal absolutely um so i'm like sitting here with my uh manuscript though, a friend of my okay. you know final book of my series that's going to cover 1976 uh to 1980 and i have a little bit more uh about uh some of the other aspects um uh of carter's package and you know ronald reagan so it's kind of like, you know, because of the heartbreak, Ronald Reagan was absolutely apoplectic about the idea of getting rid of the Electoral College. He he dedicated, so basically what he was doing for a living uh, when he wasn't running for office after he was governor was doing these five-minute radio broadcasts every day. And he devoted an entire uh, episode of this broadcast to the idea of how terrible it was uh, to have the popular election of presidents. Uh, here's a quote. He says, the very basis for our freedom is that we are a federation of sovereign states. Our Constitution recognizes that certain rights belong to the states and cannot be infringed upon by the national government. And, you know, as I point out, that really was um, the kind of argument that John C. Calhoun pioneered in uh, South Carolina in the 1830s, you know, know, cloaking basically arguments for slavery in this noble constitutional raiment Mm -hmm. that were revived in the 1950s by people like James J. Kilpatrick and the massive resistance Right, right. Um, so there was very much um, this 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 coordinated onslaught by the people around Richard Vigory and the New Right, 
and the Heritage Foundation, which it was fascinating to see that they, they, they said that this would allow 8 million illegal immigrants from Mexico to vote. Um, and also um, a bunch of conservative members of the House, like uh, I didn't, we didn't use the name of the piece, but one of them was the famous uh, uh, Bob Dornan, you know, the B1 Bob Dornan, right. uh, who you know, did something like um, they, they, got, they, they answered an ad in an underground paper for a fake ID and they got fake ideas and then ideas in the name names of all the members of the house committee that was considering this law uh, just to prove how easy it would be to you know fake your identity and and, and vote twice right which really actually wouldn't be that easy at all but it worked very well politically uh, and Ronald Reagan personally leaned on the head of um, the Republican National Committee, who then was a guy named uh, Bill Brock, who had actually uh, lost his um, Senate race in 1976 because he it was discovered that he hadn't paid any taxes. Uh, and, <laughs> and his opponent started passing around buttons that said, you know, um, I paid more taxes than Bill Brock, who was this the Brock candy fortune. Uh, ah, but okay. uh, Reagan leans on Bill Brock and says, look, this is, this is just, um, this is just crazy uh, that it might be better called the universal vote fraud bill. And so within a couple months, suddenly in the Republican national committee's official magazine, uh, what he, what Brock at first called a Republican idea, he literally uh, changed 180 degrees and called a democratic power grab. And uh, the RNC passed a resolution claiming that same-day registration would, quote, endanger the integrity of the franchise and, the, and open American elections to serious threat of fraud. And, you know, a few months later, uh, Richard Vigory is accepting a big bronze plaque, you know, at the Capitol Hill Club, uh, along with Paul Laxalt, who was, you know, Reagan's buddy in the Senate. He was a senator from uh, Nevada. Uh, and th- that was basically for Riggery's role in, you know, sending out direct mail uh, pieces, you know, hair on fire, terrified letters that mm-hmm. you know, basically um, you'd have, you know, dead people voting just like they did in Chicago. And lo and behold, the package was defeated and our, our best chance at getting rid of this awful archaic system of the Electoral College was literally defeated uh, on the heels of this hoary myth that uh, dead people were voting in Chicago. Now, let me ask you this. So, okay, so we, we, we start off in, at least for this, this uh, modern period, with this uh, very close election in 1960. Um, it gets sort of right. picked up by Republicans uh, over that period. It, it, it seems to sort of go into hiatus in the first part of the 70s, and then it's back in the late 70s, and it's continued, but then in the 80s, Republicans it, at the state, they get in trouble a few times. So what happens then? What, right. why, do they, why do they finally get in some legal trouble? This consent decree, because of what was going on uh, with Republicans in New Jersey, where they play some serious hardball, uh, had to do with um, poll watchers literally carrying guns. Uh, so that couldn't have been uh, that couldn't have very, looked very good to the federal judge who was hearing the case, um, and uh, you know they just kind of pressed their luck. It seems right. that they, they just kind of went too far. But there was nothing unique about what was happening. It was the same paradigm that uh, the the Republicans had been pursuing for you know a good quarter century by then. So the one thing I you know I, yeah. you guys if you if you go to the if you go to the talking points memo piece. You guys have a link to the um, 
basically the campaign pamphlet describing how to become your own poll watcher, and it says, you know, you should show up at the poll with cameras. You know, so once once cameras become the guns, things things get a little serious. Right. Well, I was noticing the stuff, and some of this is be, is is before the Voting Rights Act, which is obviously critical, or in a number of right. pieces of civil rights era legislation. But some of the stuff you describe happening in in Arizona, for instance, is just wild. I mean, you know, not kind of, you know, nowadays, very rightly, you know, we don't want people yeah. kind of asking any, you know, the people there that can't ask quite all this kind of stuff. But this is like, uh, you know, why don't you just recite whole long passages of the Constitution Maybe not even right. just to to get the nuances of. And the someone... guys, the, the men who were doing it, were 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 apparently wearing uh, police-looking uniforms, military-looking uniforms. Right, all, all, all this just stuff totally is actually nuts stuff. So some yeah, of the... and, and 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 there were threats of fisticuffs, and you know, all this stuff was in Rehnquist's hearings. You know, he was asked about it. There was all kinds of testimony. There were documents introduced into the record, and you know, he kind of squirreled his way past it. Now, some of this. So if we go back to the fact that this starts uh, with with yet another of Richard Nixon's uh, obsessions and sense of being a victim, right. and, you know, which played out so much more dramatically uh, a, a dozen years later, um, and then it kind of is quickly picked up as a not just targeting Democrats but targeting minorities now. Uh, I know yeah. you know this, but just for our for our readers, um, even until even as late as 1960, uh, yeah. Nixon and Kennedy were really fighting for the African American vote. That it was it was yeah. by no means the case. So it, it seems like a critical part of this is what we know yeah. is happening over the course of the 1960s, where that migration yeah. of of uh, Dixiecrats to Republicans. So how does how does that play into it? Because a lot of this seems to Really, the most aggressive stuff is happening in the South or parts of the country in That's Arizona right. where you have similarly raced political cultures, right. for lack of a better word. So right. how does that fit into the mix? Yeah, I mean, so it's so kind of dashed through really quickly. You know, the Republican Party is seen as the party of Lincoln, you know, in like the, I think it was like the 1870s or 80s. Frederick Douglass says, you know, well, the Republican Party might not be great. But you know, basically, uh, everything. Uh, basically, what does he say? It's everything is the ocean, and uh, the and the Republican Party is our boat. You know, it's like all we got. Right. And you know that begins shifting. You know, with the New Deal, uh, but it's a very slow and uneven shift. And certainly in the media, kind of pundit you know, kind of discourse of the 50s and 60s, and even into the 70s, you see pundits saying, well, what the Republican Party is doing to turn their back on African Americans is electoral suicide, because basic black voters that, you know, kind of 20 or 30 or 40 percent of uh, black voters in the big kind of industrial swing states like Ohio, that Republicans had gotten through the 40s and 50s and into 1960, were really seen as um, the most important margin. They were kind of the soccer moms in the 1950s, African Americans. And then, you know, there's, you know, all kinds of history that you can read about in my book, Before the Storm, uh, Martin Luther King, you know, getting thrown into jail in Atlanta in 1960, and Richard Nixon turning his back on them, even though they'd previously been friends, and John F. Kennedy reaching out to him 
and uh, Barry Goldwater campaigning for um, Richard Nixon in the South. And then, Rich, uh, you know, um, Lyndon Johnson said, you know, well, you know, as soon as we get Barry out of that Confederate uniform, we'll be just fine, you know. <laughs> and then in 1962, which would have been the same year as the Rehnquist thing, and of course Rehnquist and Goldwater are close friends, uh, you have um, Goldwater saying, look, if we want to have a majority coalition of Republicans, we got to go hunting where the ducks are, which, you know, means uh, the segregated South. Uh, and, you know, then in 1964, Barry Goldwater basically sweeping the South and only the South. And one of the things that we uncovered for the article is that uh, the Operation Eagle Eye leader in Louisiana uh, said all sheriffs in the state of Louisiana except one are sympathetic with Senator Goldwater's election. We should take full advantage of the situation. And, of course, you know, previous to that point, the idea of um, a county in a place like Louisiana going for the Republicans was, was inconceivable. So, right. you know, this is one of the biggest shifts in partisan alignment in American history. Uh, and, obviously, it's driven profoundly by race. So two other questions I, I, I want to ask you. Now, one, one is this. It has... Um, it is. It has always been my sense, although this is somewhat challenged when I when I when I when I read your piece, that one of the stories of the last couple decades, two or three decades of American politics, is that voting rights was did not have as clear a practical partisan flavor as it does hmm. today. Now here and here's what I hmm. well let me <laughs> here's here's what here's what I mean by that that. Um, because, I mean, today we are used to the fact that, um, and I, and I, and for this, I'm, 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 I'm basically carving out, um, especially African American voters in the South, but really around the country. But here, here's what I mean by that, mm -hmm. that, uh, as recently as the early 1980s, older voters, uh, much more tended to vote democratic than they do now. Mm -hmm. You didn't have this. This dramatic, what we're now used to, we take as a given that young people lean Democratic, older people lean heavily Republican. We know that that older older voters in general vote more reliably. Um, the minority population and the immigrant population of the country is substantially higher than it than it was two, three, four decades ago. So. In our current political environment, all of the different factors that makes you want to voting to be as as widespread and as high turnout as possible work for the Democrats and and vice versa. That's right. And yes, th yes. yeah, right. So and that and that, and just, that was. Well, and that and that just makes me think that you have this you you have I mean, that's why these issues are so at at the forefront, be, because, again, it, it you know, one would think our belief in democratic value should trump these considerations, but that's not necessarily the case. And that's that's one of the reasons why um all of these, all of these tactics to make voting as hard as possible to limit it, are are so present in our politics now. D do you have? I mean, a. Do you think there, there's some truth to that? But but whether or not there is, how does 
We do know that the the non-white population has grown uh, substantially right. over the last 30, 40 years. Um, and the generational tilt of, of partisan voting has, has shifted a lot. So how has these tactics to make it harder to vote, to raise right. suspicions about, about voting fraud, how has it been impacted by that, by those trends? Yeah. I mean, I would say that the, the big picture answer to that question is that, you know, everything we look at now as uh, systemic dysfunction uh, in our democracy brought upon by kind of the Leninist, you know, kind of scorched earth tax of Republicans, you can see present in our politics. Uh, you know, sort of at least since uh, the 1960s. But there's this kind of process of combined and uneven development, and they can often, you know, sort of show up in one region and not another, like the South, right? There's this great quote from, I think it was um, uh, was it Jesse Helms or one of those guys who said, well, you know, uh, we have these problems in these rural areas, you know, uh, where the people aren't as educated. Oh, you know? that was, that's and in your suddenly, piece. It's Mitch McConnell, actually. <laughs> or right, the, it's you, Mitch McConnell. Yeah, right. which is, which, so tell like, you yeah. know, what, what the era of Trump gives us is, like, everything that's present about sort of these, these, these phenomena that are kind of scattered and regional and show up, uh, pop up and kind of fade, you know, kind of just, you know, kind of is turned up to 11. And so just as an example that this was present for a very long time, you know, uh, I don't even, I think this is in the piece, but it's definitely in my, 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 my manuscript, that when this debate was happening in 1977, Human Events, which is kind of like the uh, like a magazine of record for conservative activists, uh, quotes a Berkeley political scientist who predicts that if Carter's same-day election reforms, uh, same-day um, same uh, election registration passes, that uh, national turnout would go up 20%. And he you know, didn't mean this in any sort of, uh, that's just a kind of neutral political science estimation, but human events comments that, quote, the bulk of these extra votes will go to Carter's Democratic Party with blacks and other traditional voter groups accounting for most of the increase. So I mean, basically what I would say is what, the kind of thing you saw in a relatively obscure conservative magazine with, you know, tens of thousands of subscribers suddenly becomes, you know, hegemonic. Like doctrinal uh, almost the in the Republican the Party. Republican yeah. Party. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So uh, final question is, and, and this is, you mentioned there that, um, and I have never... I've never had a settled opinion. I kind of haven't needed to have a settled opinion about what happened. <laughs> settled law, John. Yeah, exactly. Uh, settled opinion about what happened in the presidential election in Chicago in 1960. But as you say, there was a in Chicago and in many big city machines pervasive voter fraud, um, and right. yet that um, basically. There, there used to be much more voter fraud than there is now. Did have you looked into? Because this has always been an interesting part, you know. Uh, right. Is, how is that? How did it change? Why did it change? Why did it change that there was uh, less? The, yeah, voter less fraud? voter. Yes, yes. Uh, I think that well, certainly in the case of Illinois, I can kind of speak more locally. Right. It was uh, that you know, kind of a bipartisan, bipartisan commission, Google commission, got together and fixed it. You know, by the 1970s. Interesting. Uh, 
Yeah, um, I think that um, uh, beyond that, it would be uh, speculation on my part. Well, you know, it's, um, a, it's interesting because I, I about a year. I mean, in Chicago, yeah. you know, I mean, in Chicago, the, you know, like the, the history, and I'm sure that there's a similar story elsewhere because a lot of this had to do with, you know, assistant U.S. attorneys and things like that, and the and the and Justice Department, maybe even the Voting Rights Act. Uh, you know, basically there was a, a lawsuit called the uh, that, that yielded a something called the Shackman Decree in Chicago, which you know outlawed uh, hiring based on political patronage, which uh, you know really kind of like uh, cut the throat of the whole machine. Made I guess. all sorts of corruption. Yeah, right. yeah, it really kind of broke down the Chicago machine, and you know, daily dies. Uh, you know, I think that just you know things were just a lot less kind of wild west. Right. Uh, you know, as the seventies kind of. Uh, goes on. It, it's funny because I I did a, a a podcast interview with our friend Rick Hazen. You know the uh, is a mm-hmm. law professor uh, out at uh, UC Irvine out in California, and he is you know has been one of the most uh, tenacious and consistent writers, and n- not just writers, but you know coming from a from a, a, a legal perspective about voter suppression and claims of voter fraud. And I asked him this once in a podcast, and he basically said, and and I, I don't have the exact facts here, but he makes the point that voter impersonation fraud, which is almost everything that is talked about, about voter fraud, quote yeah. unquote, was never a thing. It's just way too inefficient ever to have been something yeah. anybody would spend time. But the key is, and is still what is still the case today, is when you do have voter fraud, it's the people running the election who are guilty. of that. That's mm-hmm. just the only way to do it in scale. And what I think he described right. to me was that there was, and I suspect it's like little versions of what you're describing happened in Chicago, that around the turn of the century, give or take, 20th century, there was basically a move to where the custody of the ballot has to never leave the eyes of a representative of each party. Mm-hmm. And that that really mm-hmm. did it in because he was I think he was describing to me, uh, I, I, you know, I think it was like some early a- LBJ election, like maybe in the 30s or 40s mm-hmm. or something. And it's basically, you know, oh, yeah. you, you come in to vote and that the the registrar just has a kind of book where they're checking off your name. And that's, they just change that's, it. That's the famous 1948 <laughs> Senate election okay, where um, <laughs> you literally had counties. There are like five or six counties. And this is all in. Robert Caro, and also in uh, James Reston's Jr.'s really good biography of uh, John Connolly, which came out before Caro, in which you literally had six or seven counties in southern Texas where you made a deal with the the boss of the county. Actually, this one boss who covered like seven counties, and (laughs) and you got basically 99% of the votes. Right, right. And uh, there's a really good, you know, like line in, uh, in the John Connolly biography where the guy's like, how did I get two votes off you. And he said, oh, that was my wife. You know, the political boss said, oh, that was my wife and my daughter. (laughs) (laughs) But everyone else voted for the other guy. So, I mean, um, yeah, it was just really the, you know, there were, there, there was, you know, I mean, uh, the political scientist, Robert Mickey talks about this. He has a whole book about kind of uh, the ways in which for most of the 20th century, uh, the South in no respects was what we call a democracy, you know? Uh, and that sort of struggle is, um, you know, ongoing. Yeah, it's 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 stunning to me. Well, it's unfortunate that it's not stunning to me that 
basically African Americans, with some, with with a few regional sub-regional exceptions, were not allowed to vote in the South because we, it, in, until the you know mid 1960s, early 1960s, not stunned because we know the 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 shameful history. But when I was, I guess it was when I was studying this in graduate school, I was like surprised at how much even it wasn't like there was like a real voting system even for white people. Because no. because no, 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 bossism no, no. You, you, and fraud I mean, and, and obviously yeah, they had and, power, and a lot of this yeah. was um, yeah I mean a lot of this was the idea was if we had a two party system in the South the two parties would bid for African Americans to vote for them and uh, you know white supremacy would be done for so it was very important not just to per, uh, protect you know the system of deciding who voted. But basically to anathematize any citizen who voted for the Republicans, right? So, um, you know, someone might come to your door and say, I see you voted for a Republican. Uh, you know, don't you know that, you know, uh, the bank can call on your loan or something right. like that? And there was, you know, quite personal intimidation uh, just to make sure that the, the, the South remained a one-party system and uh, basically an undemocratic system. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's astonishing. You know, we, we, we think it is unfortunate, and it is unfortunate, how many ways we do not have a, you know, our democracy remains very imperfect, but it is also worth always going back and having some cognizance of the cognizance of the fact that you really did have stuff like that happening where someone comes to your door and says we know you're voting that way you know you might end up without a job well, or you might let me let me let me loan. let me end with one yeah let me end with one story from Chicago that kind of uh, gives an anatomy the kind of changes we're talking about. One time, uh, back in uh, 2009, after Rahm Emanuel became chief of staff and his congressional seat was open, I was involved in the congressional campaign of the Chicago social justice lawyer and writer Tom Gagan. It was like a seven-candidate uh, congressional campaign that lasted very quickly, just a couple months. And uh, my partner at the time uh, did poll washing at a precinct, and we had lists of our supporters, and we knew we could tell which ones had voted. So the idea was to get people to the polls by saying, you haven't voted yet, or you know, can we help get you to the poll? And this old guy in this precinct told her uh, that, oh, this guy voted for your guy, this guy didn't vote for your guy. He knew how every person in the precinct had voted somehow. And this guy was an old Chicago ward boss, but he was the last of this dying breed that knew everyone in the ward uh, who um, basically was able to uh, get the trust of people. And, and, and that was how it worked back then. And, you know, that system, you know, is kind of like um, uh, something for the history books now. And, and but, so, you and know, it, there are a lot of people who would like to see us go back. And, and in that case, it wasn't so you're saying it wasn't that he had some sort of like illicit access to knowledge he just knew everybody and kind of knew how everybody was going to vote is that am i understanding that right i'm not exactly sure okay. uh, I, I said, <laughs> maybe a little probably that or maybe he was just watching people as they went into the polls you know yeah 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 that's wild that's wild and and all of this as you say this is it was not... like it was like it was like walk, it was like 
Yeah, and he was like literally kind of like a walk uh, dinosaur who was still kind of walking the earth. Right, you know? right. And as and and as we say, this isn't like the 1840s or even the 1940s. This is in probably not in our not in our remembered lifetime, but in the lifetime of of, of you and I, I guess, that this kind of stuff was That's still right. happening. It's 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 wild. Well. Uh, Rick Perlstein, thanks you, thank you so much. I I, I really um, enjoyed this this piece, and it is you and your your co-author Olivia uh, Gershon who who wrote this piece, and it's the she did a great job. Yeah, third installment in our our series on democracy and voting rights. So uh, thank you so much. I hope we can we can do a project together again sometime, and and maybe you can come on the podcast again. Great, keep on doing what you're doing, Josh. All right, thanks so much, Rick. Okay, well, I, I hope you enjoyed that. As you could tell, I, uh, you know, this is an, this is a subject that interests me a great deal, and there are some parts uh, in Rick and Livia's piece that I, I I wanted to find out more about, and there's other parts that just the the whole thing. Like I, any political junkie knows something about the 1960 presidential election, and that there are these claims that that there was voter fraud, and maybe uh, Mayor Daley, you know stole it for 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 John Kennedy but I really I never realized that um it had this kind of triggering role for sort of the the modern vote fraud hysteria movement uh, in the Republican Party. So I was, I was fascinated by that. So uh, if you have a chance, uh, stop by TPM. If you can see down at the bottom of our front page, we have all of the stories in our Voting Rights and Democracy series there. We have a new piece. It's up in the feature, and there's uh, bells and whistles, and everybody's sort of you know, like yelling and screaming about how great the new piece is. But even if you even if you check in um, when we're between pieces, and we, we publish them every two weeks, Go to the front page, sort of scroll down to the bottom of the front page. We have all of it there, and they're really great pieces. Uh, we have uh, the first piece, which was we, we, we uh, uh, talked to Greg Downs uh, a few weeks back about the history of basically voter suppression going back to the 19th century. Then we have this piece we just talked about, which is the more modern backstory going back to 1960. And then just published today, we have this piece by Rachel Cohen, which again looks at gerrymandering, things like automatic voter registration. And what it's really trying to figure out is, will all of the progressive groups that are involved in these issues, are they going to be able to make it not just an issue that that politically minded people think about and talk about when they're together to think and talk about politics, but something that people actually vote on when they're when, you know, if they say, like, you know, I'm going to make sure I vote in that state legislative race because that is going to have a big impact. So it's a really important topic. So uh, give it a read. And uh, thank you so much for listening. And we will talk to you next week.